The Tom Woods Show, episode 2109. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody. I'm giving away three free courses from my Liberty Classroom. One of them is ex-Marxist Michael Rechtenwald teaching you about critical theory so you can understand leftism and fight it better, as well as our course on how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America and the history of the conservative and libertarian movements. Check it out at 3freecourses.com. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here. I'm thinking in the next few weeks sometime, I want to do an Eric July week. Now, if you've been listening to me for a long time, you probably know who Eric July is. He's got his foot in all different genres. He's doing all different things at once. And he's good at all of them. You know, I can't stand a guy like that. He's involved in numerous different things and he's great at every single one of them. So I think there is plenty of material for us to talk about and devote a week to. So that's my plan. I'm going to do that in a few weeks. But another person I'd like to do a week with, but I haven't asked him about it yet. I've had him on the show before. I have asked Eric. He's going to do a week with me, but I have not asked this person. So don't go to him and say, Woods is planning that we're going to keep this quiet. Okay, let it come from me, all right? Let me be the one to run the idea by him. But I would love to do a week of episodes with Anthony Esselin. And as I said, I've had him on before, but he's just a brilliant guy. He's a professor who's for one thing, done a really, really good translation of Dante's Divine Comedy. But he's also written a whole bunch of books and he's got a new one coming out soon enough that I think we'll devote a week where we'll take a couple days to that book and then go through some of his other work. But he is such an impressive person on every level. He is exactly the kind of person the conservative movement these days wants to have nothing to do with. He's highly educated, knowledgeable, literate, civilized, not caught up in the issues of the moment. He's capable of taking a long view. He's everything that I find appealing about conservatism in the abstract. And it turns out that people like Anthony, there aren't many of them, but when you do meet one, it's nice to know they're still out there because he has a lot to teach us because of his vast knowledge of Western civilization. So what I got here is an article. You can hear it. This is an article from, let's check. And by the way, you're probably going to hear some paper rustling during this episode. It just means I've, I'm holding on to a physical copy of a magazine. Okay, so this is to make it authentic. All right, this is from the March-April 2022 issue of Chronicles magazine. And we've had the editor of that magazine on, Paul Gottfried. And you may recall my telling Paul that Chronicles magazine, which you can visit at chroniclesmagazine.org, is where I had my very first article published back in 1994, just as I was graduating from college. I had an article published in Chronicles. That was my very first one. And so, of course, I have sentimental attachment, let's say, to this magazine. But also, it's an excellent magazine. I resubscribed to it recently. You can get a digital copy, but don't you agree with me that sometimes it's nice to be old school when it comes to things like this, that you can actually hold the magazine in your hand and turn physical pages and mark it up. And what I know I can do that on my computer, but I just don't want to. I like to get a magazine in the mail. Plus, because we get so much less physical mail, it's kind of exciting when the new issue of Chronicles is in my mailbox. Oh, great. I'll have something to read after dinner. I'm going to relax and sit and read and not be staring at a screen all day. All right. Anyway, I don't know why I'm giving you my lecture about that. I don't mind how you consume material. But for me, I feel like I look at screens too much all day. 
So it's nice to have relief from that and read a magazine. Well, I happen to be reading the article by Anthony Esselin in this particular issue, and it really, really struck me. And I want to share some of the ideas in it with my podcast audience. That is you, dear listener. And the article is called War Without End, Amen. And the subheading is Peace and Rest Are the Enemy in the Progressive War Against the Natural Order. Huh. Now, he begins the article by asking a question a lot of us have asked, which is where are progressives going? What is the end point? Is there an end point? If there is no end point, what is this all about? If there's no goal, how can you be on a journey and not have a goal, not have a destination? You're just wandering for its own sake? Where is this going? What is the kind of society that if we were ever to reach it, progressives would say, there, we're here, we've arrived. No more radical change necessary, no more propagandizing people, no more screaming, no more protests, no more whatever. It's all done. We have the society we want. Hard to imagine what that would look like because we never, ever get an answer like that. So let me read a little passage from the beginning of this Esselin article. He says, I've often complained that the self-styled progressive of our time never tells us where he wants to go. Progress implies a destination and rest, sweet and blessed rest, once you have arrived. But that would imply a natural human order to return to or to attain. And then what? Then what? The progressive sweats. He neither believes in a natural order nor comes to terms with fallen man and his imperfection. If peace is, as Augustine says, the tranquility of order, the progressive promotes himself as a disturber of the peace. Oh, that's such a good line. He is too tightly wound to stop. If you live in a town full of such, you will see the pathology all the time, the unrest of people who cannot let things be. Illustrations are near to hand. Normal people honor their ancestors, accept their bequests with gratitude, and forgive their shortcomings. It is not normal. It is pathological to despise your ancestors and to want to bring their statues down. And he goes, I could read you the whole article. He says, says, normal people accept a statute of limitations when it comes to past sins, and they do not expect human purity around the corner. Sufficient to the day is the trouble thereof. This last little bit, and then we'll go on. But since man cannot take one step if he fears that the ground may collapse beneath him, the progressive must turn to something that promises, if not peace, at least the tense and temporary stasis of a truce. He will not bow to a natural order, but he will lie with awful reverence prone before its evil similar. That is the state-made God to which he cedes an ever more intrusive central control over as many features of human life as possible. Thus does a cabal of lawyers in Washington determine who gets a wedding cake from a Christian baker trying to run his business in peace. All right, this is Woods speaking now. In this context, it's important to remember that the state thrives on disorder. It thrives on dysfunction because then it can pose as the great savior. Or dysfunction creates a body politic that is so at war with itself that it will never threaten the regime because people are too busy at each other's throats to think to band together against the regime that oppresses them all. When Stalin, for example, moved ethnic Russians into the Baltic states, it wasn't so that they could, those states could appreciate diversity. It was because he 
knew this would cause problems for them. This would pit everybody against each other. This is just the way he wants it. Or for that matter, the state loves problems that can never be solved or wars that never end, a war on terrorism. Well, they love that because you can always find somebody you can classify as a terrorist. And even if you somehow, by some impossibility, manage to get rid of all the terrorists, then there's always the threat of more terrorists. So it can never really end. And that's what it loves because that provides a lot of people with pleasant sinecures. And it gives them the rhetorical cover for all the spending and looting that they're doing. They can say, well, we're just keeping everybody safe. And it can never end. Or at least it's plausible they could make a case that it will never end. Or the war on drugs. There's no way they're ever going to solve that problem. But that's the way they like it because they can endlessly pour resources into it. People can endlessly enjoy the benefits of state-provided largesse. The vested interests, and there are many, who do very well under the current drug regime will never, ever have to change anything as long as they keep that thing going. Now, sometimes, sometimes, public opinion becomes strong enough that something gets turned back, as the drug war a little bit has been. But all the evidence you needed against the drug war was there from the very beginning. And here we are half a century on, and it's still, by and large, just continuing on. Everybody, this takes just a minute to remind you that there are so many things that people can struggle with, like anxiety and depression and stress and relationship issues, and they afflict us for so long and so regularly that we come to assume that this is just part of life, that there's nothing we can do about this. This is just our fate. In fact, we're so caught in it that the very question of whether it could be avoided, whether there's anything that could be done about it, sometimes doesn't even cross our minds. Well, Woods is here to tell you that there is help in the form of our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will figure out exactly what it is you need, match you up with a licensed professional therapist who specializes in what you need. It's convenient, professional, and affordable. You can check out the ton of testimonials on their website. And by the way, just in case they don't fix you up with your perfect therapeutic match, they'll get you another one. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com woods. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot woods. Or equality. Equality can never be reached. Even if you did reach absolute material equality, which most crusaders for equality aren't even asking for that, but let's suppose you did reach that level, that as soon as anybody acts after that and makes an exchange, inequality returns. So it's the kind of thing that can never, ever go away. So it's the perfect foil for the state because it gives them justification to carry on and on and on with their interventions into society they're grabbing hold of resources. They're grabbing hold of our own minds as we begin to look at society the way they want us to, using the language that they want us to use, the concepts they want us to use, the moral imperatives they want us to imbibe. All those things make equality a perfect goal for the state. So that is a preface to what Esselin says here. He says, spiritual liberty the inner peace of man with God and his creation is not in the state's interest, for the state grows by sickness. It keeps the body politic, its poor patient, in a constant simmering unease, tossing and turning in vain to relieve the sores. 
Then it plies its patent remedies, and it has the money and the megaphone to hawk them. Trust the good doctor. Who or what else is there to trust? Not history, which is traduced. Not human nature, which is denied. Not the church, that old maiden aunt the state keeps in the attic with fancy dress and dolls. We call upon the state. We thereby become state-infected and state-infested. Hence do we sick people become our own quacks. So the ultimate enemy of the progressive is peace and repose, is people pursuing their own mundane bourgeois pursuits without thought to whatever ideological agenda is on the minds of the progressive elite. That is what they truly cannot tolerate. And he writes this, Esalen, he says, it is not just that peaceable Americans are easier to push around than our mule-riding warlike Afghans in their native mountains. It is that such Americans are the real enemy because peace and rest are the enemy. Later on, he says, we are ourselves the machines working for work's sake, ever in need of repairs that are costly, incessant, ineffective, and servile. This too is a progressive demand. Think of how despised a woman is if she dares to leave the machine behind and instead make a home a place of peace for her husband and children. And then later, he says, the progressive project is all about the increase and multiplication of cravings and demands and hatreds. True tolerance, gratitude, forgiveness, and peace be damned. Now that's very revealing because I know nasty people all along the ideological spectrum and I've been the victim of nasty people all along the ideological spectrum. And I can't say I I recommend being on the receiving end of anybody's bile. But for some reason, there seems to be something particularly nasty about the progressive style of attack. I don't think that's my imagination. I've been attacked by traditional Catholics, even though I've been in that world forever. I've been attacked by them. I've been attacked by neoconservatives. I've been attacked by establishment people, left liberals, left libertarians, whatever, been attacked by objectivists, whatever, you name it. At one time or another, they have had some pretended reason to be unhappy with me. But the nastiness, the hatred of people on the progressive left, I've just not seen it duplicated anywhere. I wonder if some of it is the self-righteousness because whatever the latest cause is, they're convinced that all of mankind must agree with them about it in order even to qualify as really being human. So if your opponents aren't even really people, then you can treat them with absolute unremitting contempt. And of course, it's the kind of movement that has to consume itself because what about the array of progressives who were willing to go this far but no farther? When the next revolution comes, they will be the first victims. And so Esalen says, one who is a pioneer on principle is the Christian soldier gone wrong. The man who will not let his neighbors rest but who must always be transgressive, is the one who doubles down on Sodom, tears down a statue here and an institution there, and who lives in ceaseless and unforgiving hatred of anything that can claim to be permanently good and deserving of our honor. He is what you get when sin is transferred from your own heart where it has settled to social structures conveniently vague and traditions stolid and defenseless. And then, of course, while the progressive wants you to apologize for your alleged sins, does the progressive ever really examine his own conscience? 
Well, no. <laughs> I assume you know that that was the answer. And Esalen says, that dark room, meaning the progressive's own conscience, is full of mice and spiders. He does not want to sweep those corners. He wants change, a restlessness that distracts him from his real evils. Inspire change, reads a tab on the NFL's website. Not marry your child's mother, live modestly, or break your favorite filthy habit. And then he goes on to say, nobody wants to do the dishes or change the baby's diaper. Confess your sins? No fire in that. Better to confess other people's. How dare you, cries the adolescent girl from Sweden. And so what we have then is just endless war. Endless war, endless revolution without any rest. Rest is the enemy. We don't know where we're going to be going a year from now, five years from now, but we know we won't be staying still because staying still is the enemy. And again, Esalen says this, war, endless war, war with no aim. That is the banner of Satan, the adversary and accuser. Thus, the restless instigator in Milton's poem determines, quote, to wage by force or guile eternal war, irreconcilable to our grand foe. No matter that all his actions will make him and his fellows more miserable, as he admits when the other fallen angels are not around to hear him, whilst they adore me on the throne of hell with diadem and scepter high advanced, the lower still I fall, only supreme in misery, such joy ambition finds. Satan, Esalen goes on, is like many an environmentalist who hates man more than he loves trees. He cannot let even the natural world alone if it means that Adam and Eve may enjoy their lives in peace and harmony with God. Satan knows that the world is beautiful, but its beauty, the peaceful tranquility of its varied and sweetly interchanging orders, goads him on to hatred. The more I see pleasures about me, he says, grumbling, so much more I feel torment within me. And when Adam and Eve fall, condemning the world to fall with them, death, Satan's incestuous son and grandson, is not satisfied because his essential emptiness and nihilism admit no fulfillment, no peace. And then Esalen speaks briefly of the moderates who think, well, we'll just go along with this one thing just to keep peace or whatever the latest demand is, we'll try to accommodate it just to keep peace. But how often do we need, says Esalen, to be battered by the next wave of madness, to learn the lesson? There is no end. That is the point. Now, somebody like Esalen, of course, feels a special sense of loss when looking at the decline of arts and letters at the present time. But he goes on to explain what the root cause of this decline is. And it's the posture of the artist. The artist is supposed to look at the world with a sense of wonder and humility. But do a sense of wonder and humility characterize the progressives you know? Esalen says this, you read Robert Frost's poem, Paul's Wife, about the mythical lumberjack Paul Bunyan and how he fashioned a woman from the slender and willowy pith of a tree. And it sings its sad American song. And you know that it could not now be written. No one tells stories in verse with identifiable characters. But that is not the main reason. Art demands a receptivity from the artist, a patient willingness to wait upon the muses. The poet must listen before he opens his mouth. The painter must submit in silence to the beauty he beholds. The artist is close in spirit to a man in contemplation, a man at prayer. 
the hard work of art is inspired by what is not work at all, but play, praise, and gratitude that is both fecund and filled with repose. But when political action is the highest social good, when progress has infected the brain, men no longer enjoy the spiritual liberty and leisure that are the soil for art. We do not tell stories about the persistent realities of man and his life. They bore us. And then his concluding paragraph, I'm skipping ahead, reads as follows. If art tells permanent truths about man, the progressive will not hear them because he has set his face against anything permanent. It's not that he produces bad art with drearily predictable political intent. The problem is worse than that. It is that the thing itself, art, suffocates. It needs air. It needs leisure. It needs vistas that span the ages. It needs a humble openness to the eternal. And to the extent that our minds are occupied territory, whether we oppose or cheer the occupiers, we too lose our humanity. We too can neither make nor receive good and great art. The progressive can say with Satan, only in destroying I find ease to my relentless thoughts. The rest of us can hardly remember what has been destroyed. Folks, you will not read an article like that in National Review. You just won't. Doesn't happen. Does not happen. National Review, sometimes you'll read a good article from time to time. But that kind of learned, old-style conservatism with a healthy dose of anti-statism, which was not exactly subtle in that article, that, unfortunately, is to be found at the fringes of the movement. It's to be found in the Chronicles magazines of the movement. But that's why I recommend Chronicles magazine, because you're going to get something interesting and rewarding on a regular basis in your mailbox. And by the way, they don't even know I'm doing this, so I'm not, I don't get any money for this. But I love Chronicles. I've been reading it forever, and I think you will find some merit in it as well. All right, before we wrap up for today, let me share with you a creation by one of my listeners. And that's a very unusual website called notboundliving.com. And it's created by somebody who discovered that his children were dyslexic. And so he went from there to starting a tutoring business to help children with dyslexia, including his own. And it was during that time that he realized that he himself had it. He also describes himself as living a holistic or a natural life which involves, of course, the outdoors, but also essential oils, herbs, food, plants, all these sorts of things. And he puts this all together in this website, notboundliving.com. So check that out. Now, by the way, my recommendation for people starting blogs is that when I get to your blog, I want the first thing I see to be blog posts. Because if I get to that page and I have to search for your blog or I have to click where it says blog, I'm probably not going to. Or a lot of Visitors probably aren't going to. The blog posts, this is advice for anybody. The blog post should be right in your face on the homepage. And I shouldn't have to click to read the whole blog post because you're going to lose half the people who won't even bother clicking. You do not want the blog post continued on the next page, even if it's a long post. So not click here to read more. You don't want any of that. That is your mortal enemy. So when you land on the page, the blog post should be clearly readable. You can have a little about thing along the side column if you want. Or you can just have an about link for people to click on what is this whole thing about. But the blog posts are the thing. And so you want to have them in their entirety right there on the homepage for people to start scrolling through. So that is my recommendation, both to this site and to any site that you might start someday, particularly one that revolves around a blog. 
Now, my website is a little bit of an exception to that. Tomwoods.com, well, yes, that is. this is a case of do as I say, not as I do. But my website is really more a place where I post my podcast episodes and stuff like that. And plus, I'm having the homepage completely redesigned where I have a lot of offers that people know about. And sometimes that's what they're looking for. And I want to push those more than my blog posts. But if you don't, then the blog posts in their entirety are what belong on your homepage. Anyway, but it's a wonderful site with all sorts of interesting and quirky things and resources that I bet a lot of you will identify with. So check out notboundliving.com. I'll link to it at tomwoods.com slash 2109. And I would be delighted to promote a website that you have not yet started, but are thinking of starting just the way the creator of Not Bound Living got this one publicized by me. All you have to do is go to tomwoods.com slash publicity and you'll see the simple things you need to do to get me to promote your site. But it can't be a site you have already. It's gotta be one you haven't started yet. You'll see why. And I will help get it off the ground and get you some traffic and give you some other free goodies. So get the details on all that at tomwoods.com slash publicity and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.